This audio file is a production of Chiasmos, the University of Chicago's international and area studies multimedia outreach source. For related audio and video, or for more information about the project, please visit chiasmos.uchicago.edu or internationalstudies.uchicago.edu. is a fellow and the director of the Global Governance Initiative of the American Strategy Program at the New America Foundation. He was most recently the Global Governance Fellow at the Brookings Institution. He has worked at the World Economic Forum in Geneva, Switzerland, where he specialized in scenario and risk planning, and at the Council on Foreign Relations, where he conducted research on terrorism and conflict resolution. In his book, The Second World, he examines the intersection of geopolitics and globalization. Please join me in welcoming Parakana. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for, to everyone for being here. How's the sound? Is it OK? OK. Thanks. Um, well, I want to begin, of course, by explaining why I wrote this book um, that, uh, that we're discussing this evening called The Second World. And um, as was mentioned, it's about the intersection of geopolitics and globalization. Let me explain very briefly why it is that those two topics interested me uh, before I got started on this project a couple of years ago. It seemed to me, and this was about 2005, uh, I was at, I hope that's not my fault. No, it's not, but I'll just turn this off anyway. Sorry, I'm having a Giuliani moment. There we go. Okay, so a few years ago, um, you know, one could one could browse bookstores here or uh, or anywhere and find that that there was an increasingly prominent literature on uh, the growing role of China in the world and the notion that China would dominate the 21st century and America was destined to be gobbled alive and everyone else too. Uh, and you started to see a lot of that, uh, and the titles continue to come out every single week. Uh, but there's also a literature on Europe saying that you know Europe, the European Union has expanded uh, by by one country per year on average since the collapse of the Soviet Union and is nearing a membership of 30 countries into what truly is a broad imperial commonwealth uh, sort of zone of stability, peace, and wealth. And then, of course, there is a and and how Europe really you know is is the largest economy in the world or or common market. Uh, exports and, and uh, invests the most capital overseas, provides, provides the most development assistance in, 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 in the poor countries of the world, and so on and so on. So there was, a, there was sort of you know, growing literature on that. And then, of course, what we, what we always have is the literature on how America is the world's dominant, most powerful hegemon, will rule the 21st century still, and faces no rivals, particularly because of our military preponderance, and so on. So you have these three sets of books that are, that are being published all the time. And you know, it's, it's kind of a commonsensical statement, but last time I checked, we live in, on one planet. So how is it that all three literatures can coexist in almost complete, not ignorance of each other, but in, in really willful neglect of each other, really trying to make their point? So I wanted to address this somehow, and I wanted to write a book about you know, an unbiased look at all three powers at the same time, while also, of course, bringing into account uh, Russia, Japan, India. How do you deal with all of them? So there's that standard realist kind of uh, motivation 
for looking at, at the transformation of geopolitics today in the post-Cold War world, which is still obviously a very fruitful area of in inquiry in this book, is only one you know, sort of small contribution to that. But then, of course, there's globalization. The only You don't have to look at the world only through the lens of power transition, superpowers, empires, and so forth. Um, you know, Tom Friedman and everyone else writes about globalization, global integration, interdependence, and, um, you know, and also about uh, the socioeconomic aspects of globalization, uh, you know, winners and losers in the global economy, and, you know, are we really achieving one world, um, and so on and so on. And so one can write books, and obviously there's, there's many that have come out at the same time, that focus really purely on, on globalization and not about conflict, not about empires, not about the rise and fall of, um, of, of superpowers and civilizations and so forth. And that globalization literature also talks not only about divides globally, sort of winners and losers, haves and have-nots, first world and third world, but also about divides within countries. Um, in other words, you know, how is globalization leading to uh, elites capturing a greater share of resources in the world, the rich-poor gaps widening in certain areas, and so on. That's my, my desire to bring together the geopolitical aspects of what people are commenting on on in the world and the globalization aspects. Again, it's one world. All of these things are happening, but everyone's taking a little slice of the picture. And I wanted to do something somewhat integrated. Um, motivated me to write this book. And the title I came up with, Second World, uh, you know, the, the term, of course, used to refer to the socialist, you know, communist world. But because that no longer exists, and certainly not as a unified block, uh, we no longer use it. We still say first world and we still say third world, which are very fluid sort of monikers, loose categories that we sort of throw around. But we don't say second world anymore. So about, uh, you know, I had a research assistant search through the social science research index and, and, turn, and what he turned up was that the term hasn't appeared much of anywhere since about 1993. So I said, perfect, let me just sort of reinvent this term. And anyone who's, you know, under the age of, say, you know, 30 probably hasn't even really heard it in any case. Um, at all. So I thought I would reappropriate this title, but of course I wanted to redefine it. And I mentioned earlier that, that there's an increasing focus on how globalization is div creating divisions within countries, making them both first world and third world seeming at the same time. Capital cities that have a lot of wealth, but countrysides that are poor and dilapidated and, and seemingly backwards. Again, first world, third world at the same time coexisting in the same country. And I started to ask, is it more important to think of a country as a unified whole and a ter sovereign territory, or to think about how schizophrenically divided so many countries are uh, within themselves, and whether or not that isn't the sort of the big picture trend that's happening alongside all of these shifts in, in polarity and, and great power and superpowers and so forth. So that's how I sort of um, came up with the title Second World, uh, because I wanted to really focus on all these places that, uh, that, that, are, that are internally divided. Um, but the way to bring it into one framework, I thought, wasn't just to sort of, you know, write a book that says, okay, chapter one, geopolitical change, chapter two, globalization, you know, chapter three, these countries or this continent or this region. That would have been just a lit review and it would have been fairly boring. So I said, what I want to do is, is what I've spent a lot of my life doing, and that's just travel. So I more or less packed up. Uh, from uh, from Brookings, and I spent about about two full years, almost entirely outside of the country, and I went to about forty countries in uh, five regions of the world. And the book is structured along the along those uh, regions. 
and so I began in uh, in Eastern Europe, um, sort of what I call the West's East, uh, from the Baltics and Ukraine through the Balkans across Turkey to the Caucasus to the Caspian Sea, and then I went uh, into Central Asia to every single country that ends in Stan, and uh, and those are the countries that are hard to spell. Uh, and then I went to Latin America, uh, mostly focusing on South America. And I spent uh, quite some time in Venezuela, Colombia, Brazil, Argentina, and Chile. And then I spent the longest amount of time for this book in the Middle East, uh, or as I call it, the so-called Middle East, because the term makes you know, decreasing amounts of sense to me, and I'll explain why. And I went from you know, Morocco, basically all the way to Iran, except Iran never let me in, uh, despite all my efforts. Maybe some, maybe for another book, uh, some other time. Um, and uh, and I and I sort of spent about you know about six months in that in that part of the world. And then the final section of the book covers uh, East Asia, which I spent the most time in Malaysia, Indonesia, Thailand, and so on. And I wanted to, and you know, the the more you travel, the harder it gets to synthesize these different intellectual avenues, the geopolitical stuff, the globalization ideas, and uh, the internal sort of analysis of countries where there's so many domestic factors that may not seem to have anything to do with great power rivalry or multinational corporations and forces, but just what is happening in that, in that place at that time. So I would, had this sort of you know, basket of theoretical underpinnings but the approach, as I just described, it was entirely aesthetic, as I call it. I just traveled. You know, my, um, my strategy was to just collect observations, judgments, perceptions. I talked to as many people as I could. Um, you know, when you're in, a, in the think tank or academic environment um, or in Washington, you can quickly get access to a lot of people. So I had no trouble meeting with prime ministers and, and ambassadors and whatnot in various countries, but that was always the kind of, just the tip of the iceberg. I would go to countries and basically not leave until I felt like I had the story. I would spend the first couple of days going through the kind of stock meetings that were prepared for me through contacts, but inevitably someone says, oh, you're interested in this? Well, you have to meet my cousin who's, the, who's running this company. You have to meet this contact of mine who's in this ministry. And I would just stay and keep on talking to people, keep on interviewing people, until I felt like I had the picture and where the kind of marginal value of, um, of interviewing more people sort of ran out. So some countries, you know, I spent a few days, you know, countries like Turkey and Egypt and Brazil and elsewhere, I would spend a month or more. Uh, and certainly in China, I spent an entire summer um, in order to feel like I had the picture. So again, there wasn't a strict sense of, okay, I'm going to interview these diplomats and these foreign ministries, and I'm going to ask them this set, you know, stock set of questions. I wanted to form an aggregate picture and view these countries and tell the story of geopolitical change and globalization, which could be told from sitting in an office here at the University of Chicago. I wanted to tell it through the eyes of these countries. Um, because for me, these are, these are the sort of, you know, I, I chose what I believe are the countries that are most pivotal, pivotal for shaping the balance of power and globalization in the 21st century. And I did conclude in the end that, uh, that there really are these three uh, imperial systems. And I think you know, it, it's easy to caricature what I've written and say, OK, he's just taking 19th century European geopolitics of, of territorial rivalry among, among powers fighting either um, in Europe or, or over colonies and extending that to the global domain. 
But geopolitics today exists within this framework of globalization. Competition isn't always about territorial conflict. Uh, it is certainly about resources, but influence takes so many forms in an integrated, globalized world. And again, the second world I found is the main sort of battlefield. But I did conclude that that literature I was talking about at the very beginning about Europe, about China, about the US, there was something to that because these represent the three most influential modes of governance, of diplomacy, statecraft, empire building, norms, standards, rules, and appeal around the world. People don't, in South Africa, say, we want to be like Russia. You know, in Tunisia, they're not saying, what can we learn from the Japanese? You know, but they are saying, hmm, you know, uh, or the leadership is certainly saying, well, there's this Chinese model about economic growth without political reform. That sounds good. And you hear that from a lot of you know, semi-authoritarian states. So you know, the appeal of what China has done and is doing is very strong in many places. And you hear a lot of places saying, we need to be like the European Union. Think of ASEAN in Southeast Asia, where it's explicitly modeled on the European Union, because it is the most successful trans-state governance model that's, that's ever existed. But again, you don't hear people in, uh, in, in Argentina worrying about you know, Russian foreign policy. You know, so, so Russia is no longer uh, there in that top tier of sort of superpowers. And Japan maybe came too early. Uh, there was, there was a, in the 1980s, the literature was, of course, about Japan, but not so much anymore. And India, I don't believe, is sort of there yet. It isn't where China is. And because China has had that first mover advantage, particularly in Asia, and risen to this rank of superpower, at least in, in, my, in my view, uh, it makes it increasingly difficult for India to compete because, uh, because everything that it wants to do, China is already sort of, sort of doing. So for me, the big three, as I call them, uh, remain, uh, you know, or are going to be for the next decade or more, China, uh, the European Union, and the United States. It's not to say, again, that Russia, India, and Japan aren't important. It's that I consider them balancing powers rather than superpowers. A superpower has to have global influence. And, uh, and the European Union has that through its financial and diplomatic clout, obviously not its military. Um, and China increasingly does as well, and certainly the US does. So those are the big three, and they meet this criteria for being a superpower, that global influence. Others simply do not, uh, not anymore or not yet. And the term I use to kind of describe this uh, phenomenon is, is the geopolitical marketplace. It's a marketplace in which countries are now starting to choose what model or they find most, uh, most appealing to them, who they most want to ally with and draw resources from. And again, in a unipolar world where it's just the United States, and that's what we thought the world was in the 1990s, it was us or nothing. We, we were the, the whole world's only superpower. It was sort of you take it the American way or you, or you leave it. But now you have a marketplace, and a marketplace is about choice and choices. Countries have those choices. So to me, the story of what America's future geopolitical role is going to be is not a matter of just dogmatism and ideology and we're number one. It had to be, has to be proven. And to me, the second world were the sort of swing states in between uh, where this geopolitical sort of struggle or competition was going to, going to play out. So I want to talk through a couple of, um, sort of, you know, quickly summarize in a way a couple of the more, um, more interesting examples of how globalization, geopolitics, 
the internal divisions of countries are all sort of meshing together in this very fuzzy and complicated way, which is the sort of um, style I use in the book is to sort of give country by country kind of biographies. I call it almost sort of psychoanalysis of, um, of countries. Um, take the example of Ukraine, where in the 1990s people talked about it as, um, or Samuel Huntington wrote about it in The Clash of Civilizations as a sort of cleft state, I think, um, where it was divided between East and West, a, a Western-leaning, um, European-leaning um, uh, half, and a, and a more Russian-oriented East. Um, and it was, um, it was a place where, uh, several years ago, the US and Europeans sponsored this you know, so-called Orange Revolution to, to sort of oust the, um, the Soviet-era leader and bring in um, a sort of more Western-oriented leader named uh, Viktor Yushchenko. Now, what happened there you know, to, to the outside world or, or, or to, to, to American policymakers was, okay, it's an obvious choice between West and East, install the right guy, you know, sort of the our son of a bitch school of thinking, and, uh, and the rest will take care of itself. It wasn't obviously that clear cut, but there was nothing wrong with at least kicking off the process of trying to make the country more Western oriented. But by not taking into account the internal picture in the country, where the city of Kiev, which is, of course, where the focus of political attention uh, was, is the same city that gets 95% of the foreign investment, led to people to ignoring the picture that the social divides were so strong and that the government that we sort of helped install was so focused, really, on um, its diplomatic relations with the West, talking with NATO and the EU, and, um, and focusing on the sort of elite squabbles in the capital that in fact, a couple of years later, our guy, so to speak, Yushchenko, really kind of blew it. He hadn't reached into the society, used the opportunity in relations with us to, to sort of create or stimulate that broader transformation. And he, in the next parliamentary elections that they had, he was replaced, or he wasn't replaced, but, but the, uh, the parliament shifted towards the pro-Russian leader, uh, Yanukovych. So again, this is an instance of why I wanted to explore countries from the inside out on their own terms. What are their issues and challenges? Because if you look at countries as just pieces on a chessboard and you say, if the regime is for us, we're okay, you're ignoring the fact that society may not be for you, society may not be benefiting from the changes that you think you've installed there, and then they may turn against you. And so for a while, that seems to be what had happened in, um, in, um, in Ukraine. And yet the story gets even more uh, complicated because you have to take into account the demographics of the country. Ukraine, unlike other European countries where there's a concern about population decline and, and aging, it's a very young country. So most of the young people I met there, and again, I didn't just meet you know, policymakers. I spent a lot of time with students, with journalists, with, uh, with um, basically anyone who would, who would talk to me, entrepreneurs and the like. It's a very young country. It's almost like uh, Arab countries when people talk about a youth bulge. Uh, it has a very young, educated, eager population, most of which only has bad or not, no memories of life under Soviet rule. So one has to extrapolate from that that over time you will have a more sort of pro-Western society, but it's going to take a much longer time to get there than simply a matter of changing the regime. So, and also, you know, the issue of Ukraine, Ukraine is so strategic uh, because these issues of geography and demographics come together with the issue of Europe's aging population and need to reinforce its, its, uh, its labor supply. 
All of these things tie together because Europe, some people say, is dying. It needs people. Ukraine has people. Ukraine is the conduit for all the much of the Russian natural gas that comes uh, to Western Europe. And of course, there's been there have been recently in the news, as you've probably seen, disputes with um, disputes with Russia, and uh, and Russia has cut off the natural gas supply at various times through Ukraine. And then there's the issue of how far can the EU and NATO expand eastward without you know sort of alienating Russia too much. Ukraine is this crossroads, very strategic country. And so that's why I wanted to not only just say, well, what's going to happen next in this tit-for-tat struggle between, uh, you know, between Europe and Russia over Ukraine, but see the picture from the inside out and bring in that kind of complexity about the, the demographics, the internal economic issues, and so on and so on. And again, ultimately, the jury is still out. And I, I want to get to this at the end, but I want to say that in no second world country, no matter how much time I spent there, did I come away, and I, and I even said to you earlier that, that uh, I felt like I got the story and I stayed, I feel like I got the story, but there's one piece of the story of every country that I never got, and that was universal across the second world. I cannot tell you right now at this minute, if you name the country, I can't tell you five years from now it will have succeeded or failed, and that's life in the second world. In Ukraine, there's just no certainty of to find they've got this fantastic potential of a young, educated population strong math and engineering skills, a good infrastructure, and so forth. But they also have Russia trying to you know, sort of ruin their day um, at, at, at every turn. What the outcome will be is really unclear. And for the 40 or so countries in my book, that is the picture that I'm trying to paint, actually, uh, for you, uh, is that it's still unclear no matter how well you get to know a place. Um, in, this, in this day and age, it's very hard to say. But the next country I want to turn to is uh, Turkey. Um, now, Turkey is a country which was considered a very strong strategic ally of the United States uh, because of its NATO membership, uh, you know, going back several several decades, and very key Cold War ally. Um, but over the last four decades, Turkey has also been becoming ever more close to the European Union uh, by way of their uh, customs union, demographic uh, flows, remittances uh, from the Turkish diaspora in Western Europe to Turkey, and all these reasons. All these things were happening, and certainly Turkey has had a relatively consistent ambition to become a member of the European Union. But my argument is that even if it never becomes a member of the EU, it's been Europeanizing. I think that this is something that was lost on the Pentagon in 2003, when they wanted to invade Iraq and assumed that Turkey was going to allow access to bases to conduct that invasion. And as you all know, what happened after a very sort of gut-wrenching you know, parliamentary debate and a lot of back and forth is that Turkey ultimately said, no, no thanks. You're not going to be able to do it from here. That certainly hurt the Iraq operation in a number of uh, strategic ways. So the miscalculation over Turkey, again, is one of those <coughs> issues where you can look on the map and you can say, there's Turkey, it's a member of NATO, we're America, Turkey's our ally, we need to conduct a war, and we don't need to, we certainly don't need to, didn't need to, but uh, we are going to invade a country that Turkey borders, therefore they will be on our side. Obviously it didn't play out that way. Would it not have been more helpful to have a better understanding of domestic dynamics in Turkey? A phenomenally complicated country, um, which has a strong you know, military presence, a strong military component to its governance, which the US obviously relied on support from, but obviously a blossoming civil society and media 
and it has its own vision for what a more liberal Turkish uh, state should be like. Uh, a political class that sort of you know looks multi-directionally and um, and has its own agenda, and then of course a growing Islamist political presence, the AKP, which is presently in fact in power, which despite being Islamist is also pro-European for a variety of reasons. So again, extraordinarily complicated landscape, which I don't think that we sufficiently appreciated and therefore our decision making was hurt. Now, the interesting thing about Turkey in the end, again, in, because I, this fundamentally is a book about geopolitics, even if it's told through sort of you know country biographies, is that what's happening in Turkey is not that Turkey is necessarily just going to cave into the European Union eventually and do everything they want. What's happening is that Europe's very deep engagement with Turkey, billions of dollars in, in, um, in investment, all the tourists, most of the tourists in Turkey are European, uh, all of the deep engagement in its political reforms and changing of its laws, all of those things are actually making Turkey a stronger state, making it a more confident state. So what I describe in my book is that ultimately what Turkey is becoming is not a country that's loyal exclusively to Europe and no longer the United States. And again, it's not this 19th century game of, okay, we switch from one, we jump to the other, or the Cold War game where it's, you know, okay, we'll bounce between um, the US and the Soviet Union. What Turkey has decided to do is, is what I call be, is to be more neo-Ottoman. Neo so I call it neo-Ottomanism is the phenomenon that's happening. This increasingly confident Turkish state is going to do it do things its own way. Um, it's going to continue to take money from Europe, and because it has become, by way of the Baku Chehan pipeline from Azerbaijan, the conduit for a very important percentage of Europe's energy supply, uh, they know that that rather than Turkey forever kowtowing to Europe and and sort of sort of sort of bowing to Europe, instead Europe needs Turkey. So again, the second world is important not just because these are swing states between superpowers, but because they have a mind of their own. And no country better exhibits the trait of having a mind of its own than Turkey. And so what I try and do is explore that dynamic. And because it is perennially, for thousands of years, been one of the most you know, obviously strategic territories and, and areas in the world, it's very important to understand this notion of neo-Ottomanism and Turkish psychology or geopolitical psychology in, um, in the 21st century. And if Europe is going to be a superpower, as Turkey becomes more powerful, it's actually going to have to be a, what I call a Euro-Turkish superpower, because Turkey will never be sort of tamed and subdued. And that's, that's one of those um, second world traits that I found more and more countries saying, because globalization and relations with great powers are bringing us vast resources, we now have the power to do things our way. So the notion that America just calls the shots is, doesn't really hold, not just because China is powerful and Europe is powerful and Russia is more powerful, but also because the second world is itself very powerful, country by country, and in the ways that they sometimes work together. So obviously I'm not going to run through every uh, country in the book, but uh, I want to point out just some, some uh, observations about a couple of regions more broadly and some of the contrasts that I sort of picked up um, you know, along the way. Um, if you think about South America, which has been considered so strategically irrelevant in a way recently that, that I, I, for one, had to fight to actually keep the, the, that section uh, in the book because they were like, well, Latin America? Who really you know, cares about Latin America? I was like, no, it's important. Trust me. I had never actually been there uh, for all the traveling I've done in my life, but I had a sort of hunch 
again, looking at you know Chinese activity there, looking at the rise of um, leftist movements in Hugo Chavez, I felt that if you if you take the picture and globalization, bringing Latin America's resources, vast natural resources, think of Brazil, um, closer to global markets than ever before. There's a very strong case to be made that Latin America is, in fact, geostrategically significant in ways that people have just completely ignored. And Brazil-China relations are probably the best embodiment of that. Their trade has grown by multiples that, that, that are just astronomical. And of course, China needs um, the, the beef, the milk, the soy, uh, the timber, all these things that, that, um, that Brazil has. And also, of course, Hugo Chavez has oil, and most of it goes to the United States. But what does he say sometimes? He's like, we're not going to send you oil anymore. You know, we're going to route it all to China. Uh, China didn't tell him to say that, but, but you know, it gives you some picture of the way in which even Latin American countries, which we think of as falling under the, the, the Monroe Doctrine, that's 200 years old now almost, don't seem to respect the Monroe Doctrine all that much, do they? And so I title that section of the book, The End of the Monroe Doctrine, because it really is over. Globalization has killed it. China has killed it. Chavez has killed it. Uh, even when Chavez goes, which could be sooner, it could be later, the awakening that Latin America has experienced, which is not necessarily anti-American, but it's more about just saying, you know, we can stand up, um, has really meant that we have to think very differently about the notion of American hegemony and dominance, not just globally, which is the, the macro message of my book, but in our own backyard, Latin America. So it's better to recognize this now than when it's, um, than when it's, uh, when it's too late. And the, the, really the most fundamental reason why Latin America is important strategically is because when we talk about energy interdependence and the need to become more competitive and economically vis uh, with respect to Asia and so forth, the answer is not with, um, the, the, the answer fundamentally is with Latin America. The Western Hemisphere, from the Arctic through Canada and the, and the oil uh, resources that they're discovering there, uh, Mexico, in the Gulf of Mexico, uh, Venezuela and Brazil now is discoveries of oil and gas that may be greater than Venezuela and so forth. The United States could potentially be totally in independent of energy demand from the Middle East. It wouldn't necessarily require um, you know, that everyone drive a hybrid car or anything like that. Actually, just oil. I don't have all the exact numbers, but one thing is for sure. If we today get 20-some percent of our oil, or 25, from the Middle East, it could be substantially less if we were developing the full potential of resources in this hemisphere. And that then, our involvement in the Middle East could potentially look very different. It's a very long-term picture, but it shows just how important Latin America should be in geostrategic consciousness in this country, but isn't. Then I mentioned economic competitiveness. Um, Asia is obviously you know, drastically outproducing uh, in terms of efficiency and volume um, you know, the, much of the rest of the world. But in the 1950s and 60s, the US had a policy called the Alliance for Progress and invested heavily in developing the industries, steel and so forth, in, in Brazil and Argentina and elsewhere. And that actually helped, it goes back to actually before World War II and Brazilian steel was, was an important part of uh, America's World War II effort. Today, if the U.S. were to do the same thing, because of the low cost, labor costs, and so forth, and the potential productivity gains from technology investment from America in Latin America, the Western Hemisphere, again, particularly South America, could become more competitive with Asia than has been, and U.S. firms would have greater leverage there than they potentially do in other regions 
where capital markets and indigenous industries and companies are coming up very strongly and where America's share may not be as great in the future, but it certainly could be a very high share and a profitable share in Latin America. But where is the evidence that America is considering doing that? What are our presidential candidates saying about NAFTA? I mean, they're saying they might even scrap that. So are we anywhere near the kind of hemispheric integration that would lead to greater American competitiveness and energy independence? Absolutely not. We might even be going in the opposite direction. So Latin America, far from being geopolitically insignificant, might actually be the crux of, um, of, um, of what, could, what could really save the U.S. down the road in a variety of ways. And again, you know, geopolitics is fundamentally about geography. So this should all make perfect sense you know, for the U.S. to think about its own geography and how to capitalize on its geography in order to, um, in order to, uh, to sort of stay ahead in the world. Um, I want to sort of speed up a little bit, um, and I mentioned you know the Middle East and independence from the Middle East. But even without uh, our dependent dependence on energy, there it's still obviously a crucial strategic region. The way I paint the Middle East is that it, it really does sit between, physically, geographically, between the interests of, of China, Asia, you know, Europe, and us. So it, it's always going to be a strategic crossroads that will draw us in for a variety of reasons, if not for oil. I want to talk for one minute about Libya, uh, which is in a way a microcosm for all of the sort of perils and pitfalls of what's happening. It's not a country that, that Americans are very familiar with, though um, Though they've heard of Gaddafi, and we know that we've sort of tried to thaw relations with them in the past um, few years. All these questions are at play in Libya that are, that are at work uh, across the Middle East. Um, first, can oil money lead to success, or is it just going to fuel more tyranny, buying weapons, depositing you know, um, money in Swiss banks, um, or could it lead to actual sustainable development, which it hasn't so much done in the history of Middle Eastern oil wealth, uh, which has brought countries like Saudi Arabia to the pinnacle of you know, sort of global, uh, at least you know, financial success and, and, and sort of respect, drop right back down to the bottom as quickly as oil prices do. But Libya is a small country. In most Arab countries, the population of the Arab world is quite vast, but except for Egypt um, and maybe Yemen, uh, most Arab countries have a fairly manageable population size. And Libya is bringing in so much oil money right now, selling, uh, again, to get back to this geopolitical marketplace concept, selling, uh, trying to divide its production sharing agreements quite fairly between uh, Europe, China, and Asian companies, and the United States. A good example of this playing all sides that I talk about. Um, but bringing in so much oil money has only 6 million people, most of which are concentrated along the Mediterranean Sea. Could it not become an Arab Norway? So that's the kind of you know, question that'll, that the oil producing countries in the Middle East, uh, you know, sort of that, that one should be asking about them right now, given the price of oil and how wealthy they're becoming. One need only look at Dubai, and I'll talk about Dubai in a minute, to, 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 to see what potential the Arab world has in terms of development. Again, second world is this sort of, you know, between third world and first. The Arab world is considered depraved if you read these human development reports. It's as if it's, um, it's, as if it's, it's condemned to the Stone Age forever. But the Arab world, because of oil and geography, has, has all the money and all the resources it will ever need to develop itself. It could now buy its way to success. The third world can't do that. Most of Africa can't do that. Um, so it's really a litmus test. 
But then the second level of sort of or layer of, of, of issues or challenges or questions out there for the Arab world is also found in Libya, which is strongman rule. Gaddafi has been in power as long as most of us have been alive. Uh, you know, he seized power in a coup in 68 or 69 and hasn't let go since. And he's old and often senile, but, but still maintains a very strong grip. He's not the only one. Again, just like you have oil wealth coming out of countries, you have these, this generation of strong men. What is going to happen to Mubarak, who is much even more frail than Gaddafi, and various um, you know, kings across the region, uh, such, as, such as the Saudi royal family and so on? So you have this generation of leaders who ideally are passing power to their sons, um, and that's happened in some countries, but this notion of maintaining family, sort of isolated hereditary rule is certainly a key factor in trying to understand what uh, the future is of, um, of, of Arab countries. And again, this is something I find across the second world. You can have lots of oil, but then you've got this one ruler who, or, or success can, can, can sort of hinge on, um, on whether or not one leader um, uh, becomes a force for good or a force for sort of holding society back. Um, so again, so Libya is kind of a microcosm for the region and its challenges. And, um, and where it all sort of comes together in the Arab world is, as I mentioned earlier, Dubai. Dubai is, is people are talking about it more and more in this country, um, but I'm not, I'm not sure people quite understand just how significant a phenomenon the city of Dubai is. It is the Arab world's first major, truly global city the volume of capital that's coming in from around the world, the way in which that capital through modern institutions is being channeled throughout the region, is fueling a new Arabism, not the stale political Arabism of the 60s, but an economic and cultural Arabism, which is about keeping oil money in the region, trying to create jobs and infrastructure, trying to address the challenges of social development and the youth bulge, and trying to basically you know, say enough of Western imperialism we're, we've got the money to try and do this on our own, and we're going to try and sort of fend, fend you off. We're, that's a mix of rhetoric and analysis that I just gave you. But the money is there. Dubai is the place, one of the places where it's all being sort of filtered out and through. And Riyadh is as well, by the way. Saudi Arabia still represents something like 40% of the total economy of the Arab world. And Dubai, between Dubai and Doha, you have Al Jazeera and Al Arabiya, the rise of Arab satellite television which has created this melting pot effect among Arabs where you go to the headquarters of these TV stations and you find that, um, that uh, you know, you've got you know, Moroccans and, and, um, and Saudis and lots of Lebanese and Syrians and, and Arabs are trying to come together in ways that they never did before. And because they're so young, they're starting to grow up with this common Arab sort of mentality. Uh, and of course, they already share language and religion to a large extent. So there's something to be explored in this issue of the, the, the Arab second world coalescing in ways that we are not recognizing today because when we think of the Arab world, we think of terrorism, we think of Iraq, and we think of um, just sort of you know uh, ludicrous misspent oil funds. That all could potentially change. But again, I don't necessarily take a side. You know, I pick some winners and some losers, but by and large, in this book, no matter how much time I spend in a place, I come away wondering, well, five years from now, is it going to work or is it not going to work? You know? and, and you really can't say for sure, not even about, about Dubai. And especially because also you have the, uh, you know, the other common denominator in the region is not just the new Arabism, but Islamism and the force that it is in each and every Arab country. 
and um, and the extent to which it is competing almost with Arabism and secular Arabism and, and, and fo a focus on economy rather than religion uh, as a force to sort of shape the mentality of the next generation and of, and of governance. So um, in the final section, again, very quickly on this one is East Asia, where I focus mostly on Thailand, Indonesia, and Malaysia, and of course, China itself as this sort of, you know, increasingly uh, central core or center of gravity in, in the world, geopolitically and economically. What I find is that uh, what is being built in East Asia is, is, uh, is, the, is what I call a greater Chinese co-prosperity sphere, which is obviously a play on what was said about um, what Japan had as its ambition during World War II. And that co-prosperity sphere, so to speak, is, um, is a triangle. India, Japan, and Australia. And China sits right at the center of that triangle. And what China is doing in a variety of ways through demographics, the Chinese diaspora, 50 million, as more than 50% of it is centered in countries along uh, in the Pacific Rim and in that zone. Uh, and those are largely uh, people who, uh, or to a large extent, are the economic levers in a way and, and very important players in, uh, in the economies of those countries pulling a lot of strings. Through culture, an increasing sense of sort of, you know, trying to generate pride around China. Uh, uh, Taksin uh, Sinawatra, the, the uh, sort of deposed prime minister of, um, of Thailand, who's just returned to the country, is that, was ethnic Chinese, very proud of his Chinese heritage. You increasingly find that, that Chinese New Year sort of cultural festivals are, uh, are held around the region and countries. You find that Chinese language education is picked up in places that used to suppress it, like Singapore, even though it was uh, mostly, you know, is a mostly ethnic Chinese populated city. So cultural pride, demographics, trade is a huge factor, obviously. China's trade relations with each and every country, again, in that co-prosperity sphere, in that triangle, and by, by which I include Australia, and I include Japan, and I include India, the three countries that, if you're in the Pentagon, you're thinking, aha, that's our global NATO. These are our three countries that are going to help us contain China. Well, China is doing a lot to, to do away with that notion of containment as best it can because it is buying into these countries as much as possible. Australia is so heavily dependent on exporting iron ore, natural gas, and other things to China. I don't really see Australia picking up arms to fight a war, an Anglo versus Sino kind of, kind of conflict, if ever one were one to arise. And in fact, I don't see any of them doing it, even though they may say they are America's stalwart allies going back to the days of our Aznes alliance system during the Cold War, Australia, Japan, South Korea, and so on, Philippines, each and every one of these countries, um, again, even the traditional American allies, even the first world countries like Japan that have traditional animosities uh, and rivalries with China, are busy playing both sides. Of course, they have strong defense agreements with us. Of course, they're hedging against the rise of China, but they're also buying completely into it. And trade has played a monumental role in changing the psychology of a lot of Asian countries towards China, which are fearful of its rise, but also completely invested in it. Now, trade within that co-prosperity sphere since 2005, so very recently, is now greater than trade across the Pacific. So that internal Asian trade is now a more important factor for those countries, many of them, than trade with the United States. And part of that trade is these business linkages. It's these networks of Chinese elites or other elites forming you know, sort of transnational business coalitions, investing in each other's factories and so on, reducing tariffs with each other. 
that is also creating this, this, again, sense of a greater Asian space rather than one that's dominated as it historically has been with the United States. So trade, finance, culture, demo demographics, diplomacy. There are so many acronyms in East Asia, you can no longer even keep them straight. Uh, ASEAN, ASEAN plus three, the ASEAN Regional Forum, the East Asian Community or East Asian Summit, and the list goes on and on. They're trying to emulate the European unions. Now, the US, again, APEC, ASNIS, this was the way in which, these were the ways in which the US was dominating the Asian sphere. But now, people talk about those acronyms, the Asian for Asians, Asia for Asians kind of acronyms, where the US often doesn't even have a seat at the table. Um, and then, of course, there is the demographic factor. It's, it's the young people in the region who are increasingly learning Chinese, being more socialized with each other through, uh, through, these, um, through these sort of next generational political and social and economic networks that are increasingly comfortable with China and will study in the region rather than necessarily come to the United States as they have in the past, though of course many still do. So this notion of a sort of you know, Asian space that's coming together that is dominated softly perhaps by China is, um, is a key factor. And at the, towards, at the end of the book, I focus on China itself. I spent a lot of time uh, traveling in China and driving across the entire western part of the country, uh, Tibet and Xinjiang, which are, of course, very hot in the news today. And I, I explore those territories and what they mean for, for what I call China's manifest destiny. It's kind of westward march. And I also explore a lot of, of course, the internal challenges. It's, it doesn't go without saying that China will be a superpower on par with the United States and the European Union. It has an unprecedented challenge in global history as a society of 1.5 billion people that is struggling with environmental resource constraints, domestic unrest, uh, centralized governance, Herculean sort of you know, development challenges, pollution, you name it. You name the problem, China has it on a scale that's never been seen before in history. So. I don't ignore that at all. You know, I go through them one by one. But I will say this, for all the time I spent there, and as I did in every country, I came with my list of questions for them, for this country. What are you going to do about so on and so on? No country in the world was I as just completely blown away with uh, the, the dedication, the hard work, the desire to overcome these challenges, the, the, the sort of, you know, the spirit of just sort of trying to get by however they can teamwork, all these kinds of things. Of course, China has enormous corruption. There's so much that's wrong with it. But I, I, I had to give them the benefit of the doubt in this book because, because no other country, and not, not India, you know, the democratic, progressive, liberal, supposed alternative to China is a country whose government has almost no strategy in these problems. Literally, like, no strategy. And I, I'm Indian. I say this. I go there all the time. I, I'm not convinced that India is doing even you know, one-tenth as much as China to address these problems. Um, so again, obviously, you know, there's, 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 uh, there's benefits and drawbacks to being a centralized command sort of state. You know, it makes it easier for China to do these things, but it is doing them. And I address uh, how it does so in, in the book. Um, really, just to wrap up, um, the, you know, the lessons I came away with, as I said at the beginning, the US actually doesn't have any automatic allies or friends in the world. You can't just say, we run the world. You have to prove it. The second world countries are the places where this future of our um, global position and leverage and diplomatic clout, that is where it is being tested, country by country. You know, it is Turkey where it's being decided. It's Kazakhstan where it's being decided. It's Venezuela and Brazil, Saudi Arabia and Iran and Malaysia. If you want to know if America is going to dominate the 21st century, the answer to the question is not in Washington. It is in those countries, each and every one of them, one by one. Because without 
having strong relations with them. We, a country sitting on the other side of the world, from the world we're trying to run, it's just not going to work. Um, and the other lesson, again, to emphasize is that country, these second world countries are benefiting from globalization in many ways, and they want to do things their own way. So the term that I use is not alignment in the sense of um, you know, um, having countries tilt towards us and away from others. It's multi-alignment. It's countries that are saying, yeah, we'll take investment, like Iran, we'll take investment from the Europeans, we'll take a lot from the Chinese and sell a lot of gas to them, and, and Russia will build our, our nuclear uh, power facilities, and, um, and uh, you know, that way we can sort of fend off the United States for as long as possible. So it's countries playing all sides. It's Saudi Arabia, you know, very strong traditional U.S. ally, now sort of, you know, selling more oil to the East, uh, to East Asian countries than it does to the United States, buying weapons from China, stronger trade relations with India, free trade uh, area forming between the European Union and the, and the GCC countries, Saudi Arabia playing all sides. Every second world country is not aligning, but multi-aligning. And that's what this geopolitical marketplace is all about. It's saying, I don't need to be just your friend, America. I'll be friends with everyone. So the final kind of you know, piece of the puzzle is where do we go from here? How do you avoid conflict from breaking out between three increasingly confident you know, global powers like China, uh, the US, and the European Union? And you know, the answer I find is that it's, because it's not a traditional game of just conquering territories and, and fighting, you know, fighting traditional you know, military battles as such, you have to look at the diplomatic agenda of climate, poverty, reduction, of re reconstruction in, in, in post-conflict post areas, counterterrorism, all these major issues on the agenda, and you have to rebalance the division of labor or the burden sharing uh, and try and create some kind of equilibrium where America doesn't feel like it has to be global cop and do everything when, in fact, it can't and when, in fact, our remedy for certain problems like climate change is certainly not the preferred one globally. And have the kind of diplomatic dialogue, I call it the G3, between the US, the EU, and China on these issues. Who is really going to put up the resources where they're needed? So why won't, won't Europe contribute more to the stabilization of Afghanistan? Why can't we potentially bring in China and the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which it leads, into doing some small stabilization missions there and in Central Asia, as they, as they already do, but into Afghanistan as a way to sort of create some socialization effect among these powers and build trust um, so, you know, on these key global issues, there is a huge scope for a foreign policy, which we do not yet have, one that actually does reach out a lot more constructively in a give and take way to these rising powers and create some kind of division of labor so that, so that we, we do not experience the kind of imperial overstretch that we clearly are suffering from. So, you know, it is a very messy, bumpy world, not a, not a flat world. But if we focus on those issues that we have in common with the others and with the second world, I think we can achieve that equilibrium that is going to be necessary to maintain balance and stability in the 21st century. And with that, I'll stop. Thank you. Questions? Sir? Can you describe uh, a difference between your preconceived notions of Colombia and Venezuela and what the different realities prove to be when, when you got down there? In other words, you can describe that and then why you think those realities were so different for you from your preconceived notions.
is off. <laughs> Believe it or not. Okay. Um, well, you know, it was, as I said uh, earlier, I, I had never been to, to Latin America, so my impressions were largely colored by sort of popular literature and, uh, and sort of, you know, some of the, some of the rhetoric that was out there. Uh, of course, Colombia, long history and, and sort of, you know, image problem uh, for, for obvi obvious reasons, such as drug trade and civil war and so forth. Um, and the notion that it's very unsafe, high kidnapping rate and, and all these sorts of things. And Venezuela, not everyone, of course, you know, believes Hugo Chavez, and certainly a decreasing number of people do. But the notion that because of the oil wealth that Venezuela has, and Chavez's commitment to equality and a sort of you know real social revolution, there was a you know notion out there that it could be the real continental leader and success story. Um, so all of that—that's the prepackaged version. You go to Venezuela, and I haven't felt more unsafe outside of Iraq. You know, uh, anywhere, and that's we're talking about, you know, just about everywhere in the world that, that have basically gone. And Venezuela was really bad, uh, just gun-toting militias all over the streets. You know, out on their motorbikes, uh, red-shirted, you know, sort of chavistas intimidating the non-chavistas. Um, really, you know, sort of, you hear lots of gunfire all the time. Their kidnapping rate is higher than Colombia's. Um, you know, murder rate has gone up, crime in Caracas and elsewhere. And obviously, Chavez's social programs, as a lot of investigative reporting has pointed out recently, not really lived up to, uh, to their ambitions in terms of uh, improving education, curbing inequality, bringing health care to the, to the country and so forth. So it clearly has proven to be something of it. The oil infrastructure has not been modernized. They're way below optimal production and so on and so on and so on. So I found the place to be an absolute mess. Um, Colombia, on the other hand, uh, obviously has still has tons of problems, but I found that um, I found it to be just much more sort of tranquil and, and manageable with a, with a, a sort of, you know, a, still a, a, it does have a relatively heavy handed govern, government, although it's a democratically elected one that has a strategy that at least when I compare it with other countries is one that is more likely to work in terms of actually unifying the country slowly doing away with uh, with the problem of drug of not not permanently of drug trafficking but of the major groups that pose literally a geographic obstacle to control over the country um, it has strategies such as road building creating sort of you know um, strengthening local police forces and all these sorts of things that seem to be again longer term medium term kind of trajectory seem to be working out better for Venezuela for Colombia's future than for Venezuela so that in a nutshell is what surprised me in comparing the two countries. Yes? Security-wise, in Colombia and Israel, there's an issue, it's called security for the whites. Because even though I'm white, I got my Medina, I'm not the right shape, whatever, but if you come to Colombia and you come to Venezuela, there is an issue there. And you like it or not, you cannot, they treat you differently. And the moment you open your mouth and you say, I'm from Argentina, then they treat you differently. If Americans come, American passport, which I have, it's like a whole different world. Okay, and that people need to be aware of that. One of the best rules of thumb for judging a country's sort of you know present uh, sort of trajectory, the health of its economy, and and uh, people's perception within the country of its stability is how many people are lined up at foreign you know European or American embassies to get out mm -hmm. uh, and get visas to get out. 
Now, in Venezuela and Caracas, they're trying to get, everyone's trying to get, they're trying to reclaim European birthrights and so on. Colombia has experienced decades of brain drain. You know, um, you know Miami has been a haven not just for um, Latin Americans of all stripes, Central Americans so forth, but, uh, and Cubans, but a lot of Colombians. To get back to your question, Colombia's stock market's doing very well. There's a lot of money, of money coming back into Colombia. Venezuela, I met plenty of business leaders who are desperate to get their money out of the country because Chavez is basically uh, expropriating it uh, or appropriating it. So uh, another example of, of the difference uh, between the two. Um, I agree with everything you said about India, um, but you can't, I don't think we can dispute it's a very important second world state. But I got the sense in the book that you might have written a section on India and then had to take it out or because it's almost a footnote in the book. And, I was wondering if you have anything to say about India. It was, it's complicated. You know, as I said at, at the outset, I treat it almost uh, strategically on par with Russia and Japan. You know, it's a major swing state, but it's not a global superpower. So it is very, very important. That's not, not in dispute, certainly in, in my view and, and not in the book. But obviously, you, you rightly get that impression given that it gets like only two and a half pages unto itself. Um, and it was tricky because, you know, I'm writing a book that's both about social economic development issues as well as geostrategic issues. On the, on the former account, India is way behind China. It's still largely very much a, a third world country. Um, it doesn't have uh, nearly the size of, like, you know, middle class that China is building. And it has uh, even, even more... Sort of, you know, painful uh, demographic um, sort of, you know, well, it has a young population that, that potentially, you know, heralds its, its success as, as an economic uh, powerhouse, whereas China has an aging population. But, but again, as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't have a strategy to actually provide jobs for that population. And so one actually has to worry about its, um, you know, it has just enormous uh, poverty, health, uh, environmental problems just like China does and so forth. So there's that aspect of things of it just being socioeconomically behind where China is and one just has to admit that and recognize it. And then there's the strategic aspect of it being um, of it being not where China is in its global reach uh, and ambition and sort of, you know, um, a focus internationally. So when you put the two together because it measures low in both of those domains, although it is sort of coming up fast, um, I, I couldn't quite give it the space that, that, that sort of China gets. 